<laughs> can you guys hear me? Yes? Uh, if you can hear me, please say, yeah, yeah. Oh, guys, I have fantastic news. Uh, okay. Do you remember, do you remember the quest that some of you accepted and went on when I told you about the mysterious forest fluter? Well, guys, so many of you went out into the forest on recon missions, and multiple of you, of you came back, and you told me, TJ, we have solved the mystery. We have found the forest fluter. And for those of you who don't know, I want to unlock the mystery and give you the answer now, okay? It was apparently a man sitting on a rock, Indian style, in the sunlight, playing his flute. Boo-doo-doo! And he told some of you <laughs> that his name was Gregory. And he told others of you that his name was Isaac. So it turns out he is a liar, an inferior flute player, and there's only room for one flute player in this town. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but guys, listen, listen. That's the good news. The bad news is tonight is the last night, and tomorrow you have to go home. Don't be mad at me. I didn't do it. But listen, listen, in honor, in honor of you and the great week that we have had, I would like to play for you now the saddest flute song that has ever been written. We have to. <clears throat> Let's begin. you but you can't stay here okay well hey tonight we after tonight we're legitimately going to get to say we studied through the entire book of John and I just I, I want to put these things back in your brain tonight remember with me we looked at in detail the truth of God and what he's like we looked at with nerd archaeology and pictures and research the truth of the Bible, and we proved that the things that the Bible says are just the dirt basically screaming out. They're true, and they're verifiable, and they're historically knowable. From there, we talked about the truth of Jesus' claims and the miracles that he did, proving that he was the Word become flesh, fully God. And then we moved our attention to us, and we talked about the truth of our sin nature that our sin overpowers us, that we cannot try hard enough to get out from under it, and that it separates us from God, and we are truly in a terrible, terrible, hopeless position on our own. And last night, we talked about the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection and the fact that he beat victory, that he proved that he could bring dead things back to life. And guys, who cares about the idea? But the reason it's so amazing is because some of you in this room made the most important decision that you will ever make in your life, and you went from death to life. Guys, we're so pumped for you, and I hope that you know that you don't just go home having made a decision where now you're good with God. You go home with people who love you and want to support you and be in life doing relationship with you so that they can be a good support system to you as you live out your relationship with Jesus. And that brings us to tonight, our final night, where the book of John is going to close, and we're going to look at basically the truth of what now. In light of everything that Jesus has done, that we've looked at in the book of John, and as you are about to go home, what should be true now in our lives as we go to live 
in response to what Jesus did for us. And so we're going to jump into the story, this last chunk. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 20, verse 1. And when you get there, go, yee-la-lee. Oh, I changed it. I changed it. No, that's wrong. Now it's yee-la-lee. Oh. John chapter 20, verse 1. Okay, so here's what's interesting to me as you turn. Guys, you and I, at this point, we know that Jesus died on the cross and that three days later he rose from the grave. He was resurrected, proving that he conquered death, right? But at the point we pick up our story, the disciples don't yet know that Jesus has been resurrected. They only know about his terrible death on the cross. And so we, where we find ourselves, we're going to look at the moment, how they find out that Jesus rose from the grave. Okay? So read this with me. John chapter 20, verse 1. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, which, Magdalene, do you remember this? Magdala, the little town, the guy wanted to build a gas station, and we showed you the tile floor of the little church in Mary Magdalene's hometown. This lady is real. What we're reading right now is true. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Why would this freak her out? Someone had messed with the grave of Jesus, right? Something, something is wrong here. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So, so for her, her heart just drops because she's like, oh, no. Someone has stolen the body of Jesus, grave robbers. We don't know why. Maybe, maybe to make a mockery of him or to do something terrible to his dead body is like a public display that we don't think this is like. She's just saddened and worried and, and confused what is going on. And in verse 3, <laughs> I really like this part. In verse 3, it says, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. And they're, they're being pretty hasty. We find out in verse 4. Both were running. <laughs> but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Okay, so who's writing this book? John. John refers to himself whenever he's writing as the disciple Jesus loved, right? He's like, I, you don't even need to hear my name. I'm just loved by Jesus, and that's enough. <sighs> and right now he's writing one of the most important things that has ever happened, the most. He's writing about the resurrection of Jesus, right? And he <laughs> the thing that he's focused on is that him and Peter are running, and they're running as fast as they can. And guess who's winning? Me. John, Jesus loves me so much. Also, look how fast I'm running. I outrun Peter. Oh, also, do you know who gets to the tomb first? It was me, the one who Jesus loves. He bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying on the ground, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who, just in case you're not clear at this point, was behind me. He arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there. This would have been the stuff that Jesus was wrapped in when he was placed in the tomb, dead as well as the burial cloth that, he had been, that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separated from the linen. Finally, the other disciple is referring to himself, who, again, for, for total clarity's sake, well, I promise we'll put this to bed after this, reached the tomb first, also went inside. Guys, he's writing the most important part of Bible, and the only thing he can think of is, guys, look how fast I can run. Like, <laughs> he has the brain of a junior higher. If this guy can be a 12, one of the 12 disciples, if this guy can write Bible, you guys, God can use me and you to change the world. I'm just saying, okay? Like, this is, this is ridiculous. And I love it. 
He's a ridiculous man. And so they run and they leave after this. And what we're told is that Mary, in her absolute grief, she stays at the tomb. She's beside herself. She doesn't know what to do. She's probably completely defeated. She just sits by the open tomb and weeps. And John and Peter will walk away, also very discouraged, defeated, sad, confused. And we're told that they go home. And in this moment now where Mary is alone at the tomb, another miraculous thing. Jesus himself, in his resurrected body, appears, the first person that will see him, to Mary Magdalene. And she's, she didn't even recognize him at first. She's so, she can't, her brain can't register what's happening, right? And when she realizes, she's absolutely overjoyed. She runs to Jesus. She's so excited. And Jesus says, listen, listen, listen. We, let's not take a long time catching up right now. You need to go tell the other disciples what you saw. Tell them that you saw me alive and risen. And she's like, yes, sir. So she runs. She goes and finds all the disciples. She tells them, I've seen Jesus. He's risen. But it seems like they don't necessarily believe her because the place where we see all of them together, well, let me just read this to you. This is John chapter 20, verse 19. It says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, okay, so let's just stop right there. All the disciples are held together in a room, probably with the shades drawn, all the lights off, all, anything that has a lock, they've locked. They're probably shivering like little chihuahuas going, because <laughs> remember, they don't know Jesus has risen from the grave yet. And it says they're hiding in here for fear of the Jews. Think about what their thought process and their fear would have been. For them, they just watched Jesus, this innocent, amazing, not just man, but God who did miracles, powerful, true, loving, be falsely accused in a sketchy court, and then be murdered. And so now their brains start to race, and they go, wait, wait, if they could do that to Jesus, who's way better than us, and they know that we were with him, well, then they could, they could just track us down. They could, one by one, put us through trials that aren't legit. We could be killed. Like, oh, man, what is our life now? And, and in, in their defense, their lives will be very hard as a result of the fact that they are following Jesus. And their fears will be legitimate. They're kind of being ridiculous right now. But I just want to pause for a moment. And as you think about when you're going back home, I wonder if, like them, maybe you also have fears for what your faith in Jesus, whether that was a reminder and a refresher this week or something new to you for the first time, what potential fears might you have going back home? Maybe it's that fear as you go back into your home, maybe with Parents who, who don't believe, who don't know Jesus, maybe they won't be supportive of you going to church. That could be a scary place to be in. Maybe that might put tension on your relationship with them. Some of you are going back home to friendships where people say they're Christians, but they don't act the way that we've been talking about. They don't live this life. Some of them aren't Christians at all. And you might go back home trying to sincerely live this out, and they go, dude, what's wrong with you? You have changed. Maybe you're afraid that you might lose friendships if you live the way that we're supposed to live in response to what Jesus did for us. Many of us in here, our fear may be going back home and encountering that temptation that we came up from that caused that guilt and that shame and those feelings of dirtiness. And you know, I don't want to go back into that, but I don't know if I have the tools or the strength to avoid that. I don't want to go back there. Our fears may be different, but we probably go home with fears. And I want you to see how Jesus responds 
to their fear so that we can apply it to us, okay? It says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then we're told the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Their fear dissipates and it's replaced with absolute joy. But look at what he's done, okay? What, what condition are the doors in when we find them huddling and shivering like chihuahuas? They're locked. This just says all of a sudden Jesus is in there. This doesn't say he knocked on the door. This doesn't say he had like the giant janitor key ring and he's like, hmm, the skeleton key, right? Like I'm led to believe that he just goes, oh, that's right, I'm God. Poof, woo, and everybody goes, whoop. Like he just, I don't know, vaporized into the room, you know? And, and not only that, but we're, it says that he shows them his hands and his side. Like this is the disciples sitting here they could pull his hand as close to their face as they want. They could go like this and see through it for crying out loud, right? I didn't tell you this about his side, but when Jesus was on the cross, after he had died and said it was finished, one of those Roman centurions took a spear and stabbed it up under his rib cage and pierced his heart. This was a process they did with every execution, a way for them to guarantee and know for sure that the person they were crucifying was dead. So there's no doubt that Jesus was dead. And now, as proof, Jesus is showing them this huge gash on his side from when the Roman soldier did that, right? So he, he shows up miraculously. He's showing them the proof that he did die and did rise from the grave. Guys, what's he doing? He's reminding them that he has conquered death on their behalf. And what that means is that they are forgiven, that they have heaven, and that their fear should melt away in response to those things. And same for you and I. And I don't just say this for you now going home, but in the future, I hope you remember this. If you ever get discouraged, if you ever get defeated, if you ever feel like life is hard and maybe it's because you're a Christian, please remember what Jesus would put in front of you in a scary time. He conquered death on your behalf. You are fully forgiven and right with God again. And your heaven, your eternity after you die is secure. You might encounter difficulty in this life, but those things being taken care of makes it a lot easier to navigate hardship here knowing that my eternity is taken care of. And for them, they were overjoyed. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them that is weird. Okay? I don't know if there was like some cultural tradition where it was like an honor to have someone go, <sighs> but in my family, if my little kids do that, they're going to get one of these. You know what I mean? I don't know. The point, I'm being sassy, but the point is, <laughs> I don't understand the methodology here, but Jesus is giving them the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Now listen to this. This sounds weird, but it actually makes a lot of sense. It says, verse 23, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. You're like, what? That means when someone's mean to me, I can go, you are not forgiven straight to hell. <laughs> no, that's not what he's saying, okay? This is what it means. Jesus is saying, I did the work on the cross. I saved you. You're now right with God. Your sins are no longer an issue. And now I send you. I fill you with my Holy Spirit. And when you 
go to people and you tell them about me and my love and that Jesus wants to forgive them, you know what's going to happen? They'll be forgiven. They'll have the same forgiveness and eternal life that you do. But if you go into this world and you keep it to yourself and you don't tell the people around you about the one who died to save you from your sins, to forgive you and give you eternal life, then how are they going to be saved? They won't. God has decided in his sovereignty to use people to save people. And he sends you and I to our family, to our friends, even to strangers and says, I want to use you to be the vehicle through which I deliver my love and my forgiveness and my hope. It's you. I send you. I give you the Holy Spirit. And the stakes are high. There's an urgency. If, if we don't respond to Jesus in this way, people will die and not know him. Like, like we need to get on it. You know what I mean? And... <laughs> For some of us, we may hear that and go, what? No, no, no. I, like all this stuff's done. I went to church camp and, you know, now I'm like, uh, I'm like a good kid now. And, and I'm, I'm here to make it very clear. Jesus didn't go through that grueling experience on the cross so that you now can eat Cheetos to the glory of God. You know what I'm saying? We're not just sitting here on cruise control, waiting around, going, man, thank you so much, Jesus. I'm just going to uh, do whatever I want and eat junk food and uh, hang out and have fun. And then when I die, though, uh, heaven's going to be great. I'll see you then, K-I-T, right? Like you're signing his yearbook. You know, have a great summer, Jesus. That's not, that's not his plan. He's, he saved us, and he has stuff he wants to get done right now. And even that you might hear, and you might go, like I thought this in junior high. You might go, What? I knew it. I knew it. You're saying Jesus did all this stuff, and now my response is I have to be some like super Christian. I have to be perfect. I have to have my act together. That's stressful. I can't do that. I already know I can't do that. And, and guys, that's not it, okay? As a Christian, are you still going to sin? Yeah, we still mess up. We're still imperfect. God doesn't call us now to perfection. He calls us to obedience, which is so much better and so much more accurate to who we are. Obedience is pretty amazing because even when you and I sin, we don't have to go, oh, I'm, I guess I'm not perfect anymore, game over. The amazing thing about the way that God's redemptive plan works is even when I sin, even when I mess up and I have shame again in the future, he reminds us, no, 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 it's just obedience. Even sin, you can turn into obedience. Even sin, you can go, wait, stop. I don't want to keep going with this. I'm going to do whatever it takes to repent, to turn around and make this right. I'm going to confess it or I'm going to make sure, put systems in place where I never go here again. I'm going to end that friendship or change the way I talk or, or whatever it is, right? He invites us to turn disobedience into obedience. He doesn't call us to perfection. And I think that's an ex one example of many of how he's a good God. But you might still go, okay, but there's still strings attached, right? Like basically what you said is, hey, congratulations, you're going to heaven. And now you have to be a salesman for Jesus. You better meet your quota. You better go save those souls, knock door to door. Hi, my name's Brad. Can I introduce you to my Lord and Savior? You know what I mean? And we're like, ugh. So now this whole life is just this giant obligation of stuff, religious stuff I don't want to do. Like this sounds terrible. I mean, be honest. Does that sound like scary, intimidating, and a little bit terrible? Yes. But guys, I'm excited. I'm really excited to tell you that is not the design that God has for our life. You're like, everybody go, phew. That's right. He has something so much better. May, may I please tell you? Oh, guys, thank you. Okay. So, but here's the thing. It gets a little bit confusing because think about this. You have sin. 
Remember we talked about this, I won't belabor it. You have sin, it taints you, it sabotages you, it corrupts and ruins everything that you try to do, even the good things. And you can't try hard enough to make perfectly pure good things come out of your life. And so what we're telling you is kind of a paradox. It's Jesus wants to use you to save the world, but you still have sin and you can't. And you're like, what? So, so Jesus gives me responsibility that I can't do? Yes. Dang it! Then we're just, it's just a trap and we're just set to be failures. But that's not it. He gives us a secret ingredient. And I want to turn you, we skipped on purpose, okay? We skipped a passage. This is John chapter 15. And I told you back then we skipped it. Don't be mad at me, okay? And here's what, are you mad at me? No. Oh, guys, good. Phew. Thank goodness. Okay, just, just listen to this. John chapter 15. I'm just going to read you one part of this. If you've never heard this before, guys, John chapter 15 is a great chapter. Read it at some point this next week. Ugh, I love it. Okay, so in John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. So what Jesus is saying is he's giving this analogy of what I just said, right? It's, he's saying, like, I'm the vine, here I am, Whoosh, this withered like branch thing, right? And he's like, you are this tiny baby branch that grows off of me. And Jesus is going, listen up, baby branch. I want you to bear fruit. And you're like, okay, Jesus. But then he goes, but think about how dumb it would be if you're a branch and you're like, you're jumping off the vine and you're like, I can do this on my own. He literally says, you're going to wither and die. You can't. So the way that we do the thing that Jesus has put in front of us with the design of our life, this might be hippie, it might be confusing to you, I will explain it. So he says we're supposed to remain. We, we remain. He does all the doing. He is the source, is the one that pushes the nutrients through the little branch that causes the fruit to happen. He does all the doing. He just wants us to be an active participant. And you're like, that's very confusing, TJ. You're doing a bad job. Just, just hold on, okay? This is the key. This is the secret ingredient. John chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus says, But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In some translations, that word counselor is helper. This unlocks the problem that we have. What he's ultimately saying, you guys, and what we understand about the Holy Spirit in the Bible is you can't do it. You're a sinner. God wants to save your friends and family. And then he unlocks the ability for that to happen by giving you the Holy Spirit. And through different parts of the Bible, we're told that the Holy Spirit reminds us of things we learned in the Bible. It, it convicts us. It helps us to clearly see, even more clearly, the difference between right and wrong. We're told that it prays on our behalf, that the Holy Spirit is, is quite literally our helper. And even beyond that, in uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. All these things, they sound great. You don't have to do them. They're accomplished by the Holy Spirit in you, who is a gift to you. Jesus, what he thought of the Holy Spirit is, it's so much better for you to have the Holy Spirit in you than for Jesus to be standing right next to you. Like he was so excited. He is so excited for you to have the Holy Spirit in you because of everything that it offers to you. 
I keep calling it it. It's God that he offers to you, okay? And you're like, TJ, you are 0-2. This is still confusing. Thank you for ruining camp with our last night. What a ter- No, just hold on. Just roll with me, okay? Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says, For it is God who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. What this means is, does Jesus want to use us to give the same love that he gave to you to your friends and family around you? He absolutely does. But is it an expectation and obligation? No. From the verses and the ideas that I've just given you, he does all the doing, all the accomplishing, all the work through the Holy Spirit. And not just externally, internally. This says that God himself, the Holy Spirit, will give you the desire, the willpower, the ability to do the things that he wants you to do. There's nothing left that you have to do except just say yes. It's almost the same as the gospel, right? Jesus did all the work for all the saving on the cross. And the only thing we have to do is go, Jesus, I accept. So he invites us to be an active part of what he's doing. And then we get to be blown away as he loves the people around us through us. And the Holy Spirit is so massively important, you guys, that this is the reason that we say things that sound like rules. This is why we say, guys, make sure that you read your Bible. Make sure that you don't just go to church on Sunday and mix hot cocoa and coffee and get a crazy caffeine buzz, but that you actually (laughs) protect your ability to pay attention to your pastor when they're teaching the Bible. When you go to your small group or your, your Bible study discussion, actually engage and be vulnerable in the way that the Bible interacts with your life because each of those is an opportunity to engage with the Holy Spirit in you. And guys, as Christians, you and I cannot afford to miss a single opportunity to interact with the Holy Spirit. When he wants to use a Bible verse that your pastor's teaching, when he wants to use a friend and what they say and what they're learning to provoke sympathy or a new idea or prayer or something, all of those things are ways that God does the doing through the Holy Spirit. And when you say, I don't want to go to church or this is boring or I'm not really interested in reading my Bible, you say this huge thing that is part of the reason Jesus died on the cross to give us The Holy Spirit and his gifts for us, eh, I'm not interested. Well, the Bible, Jesus would say, those are the most important things in front of you as we live out the what now, as you go down the hill to live in response to Jesus. And I want you to think about this. What if you woke up tomorrow uh, and you, like the idea of youth group didn't exist. Like there's no such thing as youth pastors. There's no such thing as small group leaders. There's no such thing as counselors. But you are still you. You know everything you know, and you're like, but I want a mentor to help me grow in Jesus. But there's no midweek youth group program. Do you understand what you would have to do? Like I, <laughs> I wonder in your brain if you'd be like, okay, okay, let's see. Where can I find a whole bunch of grown-ups where I can just pick the perfect mentor? I know, those big buildings that's like where grown-ups work, I'll just go in there. And so you go to the bottom floor and there's a lobby and you're like, there's only one grown-up here. This is slim pickings. And you get in the elevator, you go up to the second floor and you get encouraged because you see cubicles. And you're like, I, from what I understand, grown-ups work in cubicles. And then you get real excited because you see off in the distance a water cooler. And you know culturally that this is where all the grown-ups congregate. And so you go over to the water cooler, and you're like waiting, and you're like, piece of cake. I'm just going to wait here until I see one with kind eyes, and then I'm going to get that grown-up to mentor me, and I'll just be a strong Christian. Game on. This wasn't that hard. And then you pick one, and the grown-up comes over, and you're like, excuse me, sir. 
Um, listen, I need to tell you my biggest regrets, and I need at least one week of your life where you're not at home and you get off work early, and I need you to mentor me and invest in me emotionally and spiritually and teach me things. What do you think? And then this grown-up would pull a cart, a pocket of cigarettes out, smack them, light one, and go, get out of here, kid. And you go, oh, I forgot to even ask him if they were a Christian. Like, you cannot replicate what you have access to in your church, in your youth group, in your small group, in the teaching of a pastor. Like, you, you can't get that anywhere else. You need to savor this and take advantage of every opportunity, not just because in history it's special. Youth groups didn't exist 100 years ago, but because they're incredibly amazing opportunities, gifts from Jesus where you get to interact participatorily, that's not a word, with the Holy Spirit. Don't waste them when you go home, okay? I want to give you another analogy. This, for me, makes sense of all the stuff. If any of this has been vague or blurry, this is how my weird brain understands it. Picture, please. Woo! Guys, this is a picture of spearfishing, okay? When I was a youth pastor, that's me on the left and my friend on the right, we both got trained by this incredible legend of an old man. I mentioned him real briefly a couple days ago. Captain Ron, huge platinum white mustache that made him look like a walrus. One day he comes up to me and he goes, TJ! Would you like to go spearfishing with me? And I went, woo, heck yeah, I do, Captain Ron. What is spearfishing? And he explains it to me. And we didn't live by the ocean. We lived by a river. And so he goes, we're going to put flippers on. We're going to put wetsuits on and hoods and wetsuit gloves. And we're going to have goggles and snorkels and spears. And we're going to get in the river and we're just going to float and let the current take us wherever we go. And whenever we see a fish, we're just going to release our spear and explode it. And it's going to be awesome. And for some of you who are like, but those beautiful baby fish, we're going to... Listen, we were only taking care of <laughs> invasive species, okay? And there were endangered salmon, and they had these little egg gravel beds, and these sucker fish would suck up all their eggs. They were ruining the river, and the fishing game warden said, kill as many of those puppies as you can. So anyway, I say, yes, Captain Ron, that sounds really cool. I will go with you. And so I hop in his truck, and as we're driving there, I'm like, oh, man, I'm bonding with Captain Ron. This is the best day. And then my heart starts to not beat like happy beats. It starts to beat nervous beats, you know. And I'm like, wait a minute. I have seen this river. There's like huge boulders that cause huge rapids. I'm going to drown. And if I don't drown on a rock, there are huge trees that have what look like witch fingers that have fallen into the river, <sighs> ready to stab me and grab me and pull me under. I'm going to drown twice. Like, like if Lazarus could have died twice, I'm going to do that in the river. You know what I mean? Oh, pastor joke. Anyway, I'm getting freaked out. And I'm like, I'm realizing I don't have any gear. I'm just going to be freezing without a wetsuit. I don't have any skills. I don't know how to do this stuff. Like, I'm going to embarrass myself. I'm going to ruin Captain Ron's time. And so in the truck on the way there, I tell Captain Ron all this, and methodically he answers every single one of my worries. He goes, listen, I already have all the gear that's going to fit you. I have a spear for you. I have a wetsuit for you. I have goggles for you. I know every inch of this river. You don't have to worry. Just follow me. To the degree, you guys, the, when we step, because you walk in backwards like this, you, you look like a backwards uh, penguin. So we're walking in, and he goes, all right, here's all you're going to do. I'm going to get in. You're going to flop yourself down in the water, and you're just going to hold on to my flipper. And guys, as a full-grown man, 
That's what I did. I had a river journey where I just held on to Captain Ron's flipper, and he decided where we go. He pointed out the fish. He, and it was amazing. I wasn't scared. It was incredible. But guys, think about this. Was Captain Ron's expectation of me that I need to perform? Was I there because he wanted me to increase his fish quota because we had to meet certain goals? Did he just show up with a bunch of expectations of me? No. The reason Captain Ron invited me to go spear fishing is just because he wanted to do his favorite thing and he wanted to do it with me. That was it. And he did everything that needed to be done. The only thing that I had to do was participate, was say yes, was be active, and everything else worked. Guys, that's how all of this fits into combination. Jesus says, I want to save the world, and I want you to come with me. But it's not an obligation, because just like Captain Ron, when he's saying, come do my favorite thing with me, Jesus says the same thing. Come do my favorite thing with me. I love you, and I want to be with you. But Jesus' favorite thing isn't exploding the faces of fish. Jesus' favorite thing is saving people from their sin and from their death. And he goes, you will never find anything more satisfying, more amazing to be a part of. I made you to be in relationship with me. And now we together get to go do the most important, valuable, incredible thing ever. Let's go change people's eternities. And it's not an obligation. I will do all the doing. Just hold on to my flipper. That's what Jesus invites us to. And maybe at that point we go, okay, that sounds good. And I just want to close with this, you guys. This is, I'm about to show you one of my favorite all-time verses ever. Can you turn to this one? Is that okay? This is 2 Corinthians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is 2 Corinthians. Oh. You can't be already there because I didn't even tell you where the chapter is. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Oh, I love this so much. Verse 9. Wow, I do believe you. I believe. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9. All right, let's read it. Let's read it. Here's what it says. It says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As God's power is made perfect in my weakness. I'm going to show up to this world, to my friends who I love, to people that Jesus wants to know his forgiveness and I'm going to be imperfect and not enough. And God says, that's exactly the equation. I already know. I, do, I decided I want to show this picture. Let's show this picture. This, uh, you might look at this picture and go, it's a broken bowl. But this is actually an ancient Japanese art form called kintsugi. And what they would do is they would take broken pottery, which is completely useless. It's literally trash, right? It can't hold water. It can't do anything valuable. But, but in an artist's hands... They would take a precious metal like gold, heat it up, and in all of the cracks, they would slowly and carefully piece it back together. And now, the weakness, the cracks of this bowl or pottery are the most beautiful pieces. They're also the strongest pieces. And so guys, what you need to hear is you go back home. God doesn't call you to an obligation. You are going to be imperfect and sin and fail all the time. And God loves you and knows that. And he didn't just die for you. He knows that in the future. And he says, and I still want to offer you the distinct privilege of coming with me 
being a part of furthering my kingdom here on earth. We're not waiting till heaven. Some of you have family members who need to know Jesus. And Jesus loves them more than you. And he goes, you have the weakness and I have the power. It's perfect. We're going to go get them. Some of you have friends, best friends, who don't know Jesus. And he goes, I love them more than you do. We're going to go make sure they know that they're forgiven by Jesus and that their eternity can be secure and that they don't have to be separated from him in their sin. I have a student at my church. Her name is Leah. She's incredible. She's a freshman, and uh, she heard multiple messages similar to this in her youth group. And she didn't get intimidated. She didn't get bummed out that she has some Jesus obligation. She realized the name of her friend that she felt this way about, Justice. Justice wasn't a Christian. Her family is not Christians. And she went to Justice and said, hey, my youth group's doing this crazy all-nighter thing. It's going to be super fun. And she just invited her. Not too scary. And Justice came. Justice loved it. She wasn't a Christian, but she loved it. And then she came back the next week. And then she came back the next week. And then Justice had questions. And Leah didn't know the answer, but Leah would be like, I'm going to Google them. Or let's go ask my youth pastor. And so Justice started to grow in her understanding of Jesus. We got Justice a partial scholarship to go to camp. Leah and Justice are hanging out at camp. Justice hears the gospel and she accepts the forgiveness of Jesus. And then Justice learns about baptism and she goes, I don't want to just be a Christian on the inside. I want to live in obedience to him. I want to get baptized. And when asked who she wanted to baptize her, Justice asked for Leah to baptize her. And Leah, an eighth grader at this point, was so excited. She got in the baptismal, which for us is like a glorified hot tub. And she said, this is my friend Justice, and she loves Jesus. And she baptized her. And that was it. It wasn't scary. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't intimidating. She did what Jesus invited her to do. She loved God. She loved the people around her, and that was all it took. And even in her imperfection, God was using her one person at a time to change the world. And this isn't just kids to other kids, you guys. We've had kids. It's probably true in your youth group. We've had junior hires get invited to a crazy youth group night. They come. They get saved at a camp. And then three months later, they, start, they care about their parents and know that their parents don't know Jesus. And all that junior hire does is they go back home, and they go, Mom, Dad, would you come with me to church? And then I'm the grown-up hanging out with the grown-ups, and I see this couple who's new, and they're looking a little bit scared, and I give them coffee and a donut, and I make a dumb knock-knock joke because that's what old people like, you know? And then I'm like, how'd you guys find out about this church? And they go, our junior hire forced us to come. And five months later, the dad writes on the connection card at church that he accepted Jesus in his life, and his eternity has changed. Guys, don't doubt yourself. Don't be intimidated by what God calls you to. He invites you to do his favorite thing, and through you, he wants to change the world. And it will never be because you're enough or you're smart enough or you know enough. It will be because he's enough, and he loves you and he invites you. Guys, some of you, most of you actually, will go home, and your schedules will fill up, and you'll get distracted with the screen in front of your face, and without any intentionality, you will allow most of the sin back into your life. And probably in less than a month, I've, I've seen this go around. You'll feel the guilt, the dirtiness, and the shame of your sin. And it'll be a solid 11 and a half months until you need another camp experience where you can repent and pray and cry at camp. Because that is not the life that God designed for you. 
That's what most of you will do, though. Some of you here, a few of you, will take these words that we have read in the Bible to heart, and you will take every opportunity to interact with the Holy Spirit. Whether you're tired, whether you're excited, whether it's a hard day, you will go, not because of what you have in common with your friends, not because of the event that's happening, but because you know the Holy Spirit might have something for you that he wants to say and show you right there, and so you'll go. And as you do that, he'll grow you. He'll strengthen you in your ability to conquer sin. He'll allow you to be a blessing to those around you. And a year from now, you won't be wallowing in guilt, hitting the repeat button. You will be stronger and lovelier and brighter to the world around you. And God will get so much glory from that. Because guys, some of you will be counselors at camp. Some of you will be youth pastors at your church. Some of you will be rec guys here. But that's not going to happen in the future. It's going to happen based on the way that you do this year, this month, and this bus ride or car ride back home. Jesus loves you. He forgives you. And he invites you to do his favorite thing with him. And he does all the doing. What a good, good God. Let me pray for you. God, we love you. And we thank you that while we were still sinners, that you died for us, that you demonstrated your love for us. God, would you protect our hearts and keep us from ever taking for granted how far you went to love us and to rescue us. God, with our lives, we just want to be good at loving you back. We know that we're not enough. We know that we can't do it on our own. And so we say, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Would you just continue to grow our understanding of what it means to live a life led by your Spirit? God, thank you, thank you, thank you that your power is made great in our weakness, that we don't have to be enough, but you are our enough. You are a good God, and we love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.